I really appreciated <clears throat> the points that uh, Anna made uh, last night. I think it was last night, right? Lose track of time. Last night, uh, and I want to just repeat them because uh, these are points that we ought to keep in mind. It's as if we're trying to figure out uh, how to do this thing, how to do uh, creativity, art, writing, that flows directly from our meditation practice. And that's kind of a new thing to do. So these points that emerge from the process we should remember and, and think about. So the first one she gave us was uh, expectations. Very dangerous things. The more of them we have, and the more fixated we are on them, the more miserable we will be, probably. Every expectation is a disappointment with a mask on it. And even even when it happens that we get exactly what we expected, it's never exactly what we expected, because the anticipation is never the reality. And even if it feels like it, then the next minute it's gone anyway. So this is not going to work out. It's clear. We need to have some drive, some desire, some feeling that it's necessary to go forward and some energy to propel us forward. So that's clear. But to expect some particular result is to construct a gigantic roadblock right in the middle of where you're trying to go. Questions? All you have to do is is open your eyes and look around, and there's a question there. And every question is exactly the energy that draws you forward to something new. And what happens when you really enter and give yourself to that newness? It opens up another question. So that life itself, like any creative work, is constantly a process of being drawn into further questions and new discoveries. And questions wake us up and they refresh our minds. When last night Anna talked about uh, intention, it made me think of one of my favorite lines from Philip Whalen, who's my favorite poet and, and a really good friend and somebody that I depended on for many years, and, and now that he's dead, he's still giving me trouble. <laughs> anyway, uh, he once wrote, uh, what do we want? What are we after? Sometimes a tree answers. So this reminded me when Anna was talking about uh, intentions. So let's all uh, make a pact with one another that we'll stop uh, stumbling blindly forward, as we often do, uh, caught by the past and by all the various tricky ways that we've learned 
to work against ourselves without knowing that we're doing that. Let's find out uh, what we really need and want in any given moment of creative work in our lives, today, tomorrow. What do we really want? What do we really need? in our clearest, best version, you know, of ourself. And when we find out uh, what we really want, what we really need today, now, in this particular moment, in this work, then let's go there. Let's go in that direction and find a new question. And then this morning, I think this morning, in in our uh, uh, discussion, two more points kind of came out. In our, in our process, not grasping thought and trusting. Trusting that uh, what we really need is going to be there when we need it. We don't have to force it, we don't have to push it, we don't have to freak out and worry that it's not going to be there or that someone will take it away. Trusting that, it, that what is needed, whether we like it or not, is going to be there when we need it. So we can appreciate everything that arrives in thought, but we can afford to be very generous, giving away every thought as it comes. We can afford to let whatever comes go. And if we need a thought, there'll be a thought. (laughs) So these are the things so far that we've been uncovering. Uh, expectations, questions, intentions, not grasping thought and, and trust. So as I say, with all this, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a wonderful enterprise that we're involved in here, taking these things that we're learning. Um, these are sort of formulations of some things that we're learning, but, but really the learning is a little more intimate than these words would suggest. You know, we're all learning as we're in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a brush stroke, what these things are about. And what, uh, for you, uniquely, a creative process would feel like if it were to come from your meditation practice, from the uh, spiritual life that you're developing. What would it look like? We're figuring this out. So we're discovering, in a way, you could say, a new path of creativity. One that is a natural sort of uh, outflow of our spiritual practice. Now, it's obvious that many probably most of the great uh, artists, writers, and so on in the West did not do it this way, right? So, I mean, in a, in a way, many of them did, but not exactly uh, with, with this, uh, the benefit of meditation practice, but I think many of them did have this kind of, we're working in these similar perspectives, but, as I say, without the benefit of the practice. But... <coughs> But a lot of them didn't. I think a lot of them had another approach, or a variety of other approaches. So this is a different approach, uh, and maybe it's not even the best approach. Maybe maybe you would become more famous and rich with another approach. Maybe not. I'm not saying 
that you wouldn't. I'm just saying, you know, the, the, the returns are not in yet. We don't really know. <laughs> but I'm just saying, this is not the only way. This is one way. And that's a way that we're trying to figure out together. And it's a good way. I believe it's a good way. And, and we're all trying to understand it a little bit better as we go along. Now, this is something you can imagine I thought about before. I didn't just think about it this week. I've been thinking about it for maybe 30-some years. <laughs> and, uh, and in the course of that time, uh, more than once I've written about it. So what I want to do tonight is uh, share some of the things that I've written about this process. So I want to read to you from uh, this book, which is called Success, a very famous book. <laughs> Everybody wants success. Um, and I'll just tell you a little bit about how, how the, what this book is about. Um, it's, a, it's actually a, it's a poem. Um, and uh, my father was dying in, in, in the year uh, before he the last year of his life, he came to visit uh, frequently uh, in, in that year because he was really lonely and depressed, and so he came often, and uh, he would always bring some little kind of gift, and, and this one time he came, and he brought a, a bright red uh, bound appointment book, the kind that executives have, and you open it up, and each day there's a date. And if it's Christmas, it says Christmas. If it's Halloween, it says Halloween. And then there are 24 lines for uh, where you write your appointments. Uh, and on the front of the book, it said success, because uh, it was the success, you know, diary book company. So he brought this book, and uh, usually when people bring me a book like that, I think to myself, what am I going to do with this book, you know? And, Usually I write something in it, so that's when I contrived the idea that I would write a 28-line poem every day for that year. Uh, and, I, and I began, and I did it. I did that. I wrote, wherever I was, whatever I was doing, I wrote a 28-line poem, a double sonnet for that day, for the year. And I was doing this very happily uh, with the knowledge that, that no one was ever going to publish a 365-page uh, book of poem that was you know, 365 pages long. It's very expensive, paper is expensive, and not that many copies sell. So I was very free about doing this, because nobody would ever publish it. And then somebody said to me, well, did you ever think of excerpting it and choosing, selecting some of the poems? And I said, never thought of that. <laughs> But, of course, one could do that and make a reasonable size book, and probably all the 365 sections of the poem were not as good as every other one, so one could do this. So that's what happened. We made a selection of several friends and I. It was very confusing. Everybody, we had three different versions, and maybe, maybe someday the whole thing will be published, but probably not. Anyway, uh, so that's what this book is. And, uh, and one of the poems is very clever, because one of the poems uh, explained why the book is called success, because you'd have no other 
way of knowing, because it has nothing to do with anything. That the word success is never mentioned. In but there was one poem that said, you know, all the things that I just told you in, 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 in verse form. But stupidly, we forgot to include that poem. <laughs> you know, it got really confusing because there were three different versions that I made one and two other poet friends made their own versions and, and I was trying to put all the versions together and in the process I forgot about So the only way anybody knows why this book is called Success is when I tell them, explain it. No way explained. So what, now, uh, now the publisher of this book, uh, he, he was very interested in what we, what we're talking about this week. And uh, I had written an essay uh, that has nothing to do with the book of poems at all, really, but it has to do with uh, this work that we're doing. And he wanted to publish this essay along with the book, along with the poems. So that's what happened. So what I want to do is, uh, just because uh, it's fun for me, I'll read you a few of the poems, just for fun, and then, uh, and then I'll share the essay with you and, and what it says about... Uh, the creative process and, and spiritual practice. So here, here's I'm going to just start uh, somewhere and read several poems in a row. And the title of each poem was the day of the you know at the top of the page, the day that it was when I wrote the poem. Saturday, 23 June. Thought, not experiences. Or is it experiences, not thoughts, and words? Are experiences not thoughts? Or are thoughts that are experienced meanings? Pure experience beyond words. Could there be such a thing? Could there be ocean without waves? Or waves without ocean? And could I now be elsewhere than here at any other time? No one reads poetry, or at least no one reads my poetry. (laughs) Not even me. (laughs) And there is a reason for this, and it is that it would be impossible for anyone to read what is written. They are only reading air, somewhere other than here, where the needle point of reality pierces the interstices of the poem. But this is not the poem. Tuesday, 26 June. Outrageous lilies at the circumference of contingency, and there must be some mistake in the direction that fate takes, for I do not know what will happen next. Fog becomes sun, becomes fog, for any order of being pursues itself backwards in an infinite regression. And I am holding my arms extended for longer and longer periods of time, but the lily, white, fragrant, and lovely, coerces a degree of feeling never sufficiently felt in a logic dishonoring contradiction impeded by culture as definition. My heart foams at the mouth. The future 
just a matter of gaze. And if I believe I'm an intelligent person, more or less someone is. And those who wait by the side of the road, constantly being passed by traffic, which is a fault of their own, and in the weather, smoothed, eventually, are caked literally without hope, for hope, hope isn't that kind of thing. And they have learned their lesson all too well, making sleep or any other sort of rest impossible. Thursday, 28 June. So-called theater isn't in the mind. Words repeat other words, usually. Many tiny people crawl around a mammoth landscape, which is never ordinary, twice. It's in the meaning, but not in the sound. Who's talking is special, a kind of serial. That's S-E-R-I-A-L, a kind of serial. The reverse of free association, that is, an unrelated slavery, that is, no one's binding you but yourself and your stupid, unfinished ideas. Believe it and beat it over the head with the heavy words that weigh so much no one can lift them. The bottom of the scene at the very end where the characters assemble is the very thing I warned you against in the initial read-through. Uh, Sunday, 8 July. The many people arrange commas, which hardly ever, by design, appear. Commas indicate a style of thinking that is deliberate and thought-provoking, while these lines hardly ever feel the breath of thought, only the hot air of desire and the slow fire of times passing on into time, in the darkness, bent out of shape, like laundry. Hair symbolizes fate. Flowers symbolize delicate means. Parasols, the protection of morality. And ornaments, the virtuous conduct that makes a person very lovely. Kathy is always cheerful. Even when she's depressed, she seems to me cheerful. Well, I am usually rather glum to myself except when I'm exuberant, when I seem stupid. <laughs> Beyond this, I know nothing, and my purpose is to know nothing. Okay, that's enough. But this goes on for 365 pages, about, <laughs> about, uh, about 20, uh, 120 or five or so of which appear in this book. So, the essay. Do you want to make something out of it? Zen meditation and the artistic impulse. Allen Ginsberg begins his essay, Meditation and Poetics, with this paragraph. It's an old tradition in the West among great poets that poetry is rarely thought of as just poetry. 
real poetry practitioners are practitioners of mind awareness or practitioners of reality, expressing their fascination with the phenomenal universe and trying to penetrate to the heart of it. Poetics isn't mere picturesque dilettantism or egotistical expressionism for craven motives grasping for sensation and flattery. Classical poetry is a process or experiment, a probe into the nature, into the nature of reality and the nature of the mind. So that's Allen Ginsberg. And the poet Philip Whalen makes the same point in a poem when he says something like, I don't want to be another pretty poety boo. <laughs> I want to be a world. For me, this sense of making poetry or art, and I think it's, you know, we're speaking of all the arts here. For me, this sense of making poetry or art as an heroic and grandiose undertaking whose cost and goal is everything sounds about right, providing you don't get too excited about it, <laughs> seeing it as anything more or less than any human being is doing or would do, or would do, if he or she reflected for a few minutes about what is a worthwhile and reasonable way to spend a human life. So, uh, one, art isn't just another job. It's an endless exploration. And as with any exploration, there are proliferating avenues of pursuit and no final successes. And two, art is a necessity for humans. And we all need a way to find a way to participate in it. The reason we need art so desperately is that the world and we ourselves persist in being made. There is something exhausting and troublesome in the madeness of the world and in the madeness of ourselves. What is made has always the quality of limitation or unsatisfactoriness. Madeness captures us into a vicious cycle of desiring more madeness or better madeness. And the madeness we get only makes us want to make improvements or additions. Art making is an anti-making. It is an anti-making because it is making, is a making of what is useless. This is what makes art art. <laughs> that it is useless. That it doesn't do anything. That it is something inherently unmade. And this is the source of its liveliness. Any piece of art stares us in the face with the fact of its being what it is uselessly. It is a record of a person's commitment to the confrontation with the maid, a confrontation one is bound to come away from second best. And yet one does it and reaches a peak of exaltation in the doing of it. And the artwork facing the viewer or hearer or reader is a phenomenal testament to that useless confrontation which by virtue of its supreme failure calls our life into question. If you really look at a piece of art, 
or hear a piece of music or poetry or see a dance, you walk away wondering about your life. And this is what these objects are supposed to do. This is why artists make such sacrifices in the doing of what they do, because this doing is the undoing, at least temporarily, of what has done them in, in their lives, and would do them in to the point of death or madness if it weren't undone in the process of making art. One of the qualities of artworks that has always impressed me is their unstable nature. The artwork, its physical presence, its words or note or paint, is what the artwork is. And yet, it isn't that. If you are hit in the face with a plank, you will definitely be hit by it and will feel the effects of it no matter whether you believe in planks or not, (laughs) or whether you are in the mood for the sensation of pain or not. (laughs) But if you make an effort to experience an artwork, you may not experience anything at all. It may strike you as a meaningless hunk of this or that, hardly worth a second look. Or it may strike you as profoundly moving one day, and completely beside the point, the next. Imagine an artwork sent from one gallery to another for a major show. Of all the people that will come into contact with that work, movers, curators, technicians who hang the work, security guards, and perhaps thousands of people who will file by to see it, all, of all these, only a few, a very few, will actually experience it as a work of art. And even those few might come back to the gallery the next day and not at all be able to fathom why the day before the work moved them so. Or even if they could say why it moved them and explain it, that would only be memory. The actual experience of the painting that has occupied only a few seconds or perhaps minutes in the hours and hours of human contact with the work is amazing. In other words, real experience of art is extremely rare, and it is fleeting and unstable. The poet Paul Valéry said of poetry that it is, this is a quote, completely irregular, inconstant, involuntary and fragile, and that we lose it as we find it by accident. That's the end of the Valéry quote. It is a fantastic thing that people place such enormous value on something like this. Something so evanescent that we are really hard-pressed to say whether it actually even exists or not. I suppose we, to some extent, we value art out of long habit, or perhaps because it has become a good business in art's aspect as non-art, It can become just as much a commodity as anything else people will pay good money for, probably even more so, because some sorts of art are even more subject to sudden economic inflation than an internet or gene splicing stock. Yet at bottom, there remains the mystery of the uselessness of art, of the shifting and unmade quality of it, and of the tremendous need that we have for the unmade and the undone, no matter how unstable or accidental our experience of it may be. The experience of it is precious and life-changing always.
I want to go a little further in considering what the actual experience of this unmadeness might be. In ordinary waking life, we do make clear and hard distinctions between things. This distinction-making is what perception and thought is all about. And all day long, we have perception and thought, piling one thing on top of another, until there is a great weight of them. We define ourselves in the same way, among or within our perceptions and thoughts, and get buried in the process. Life is very practical and very weighty, and there is a great deal of the conflict that comes from the bumping into each other of the various perceptions and thoughts which cannot occupy the same space at the same time. So there are decisions and considerations, and there is a desire for organization, yet there is less organization always than one would like. Because as soon as the world is organized, along comes something else, and there is disorganization again, then the need to make something else to counteract what has just been made and the weight of it wants to pull the house down. The problem of being human is is historically always more or less the same problem, but it is tempting to imagine that in our current historical period all of what I have been saying is more true than it appeared to be in the past. There seems to be Simply, more going on, more piling up, more that cries for organization and will not be organized. The work of art, by contrast, is entirely organized and therefore peaceful. Formally, it may not seem organized at all, but our experience in appreciating it, if we are fortunate enough to be in the situation of having such an accident befall us all of a sudden, is that of organization, radical organization. Artistic form is the expression of this sort of organization that is essentially an unpiling of the piling up of distinctions that make up our lives. The work of art unpiles everything and undoes us in the process. It raises a million questions that amount to one question. Who are we and what are we doing here? This question is the essential question that undoes us every time because we never can answer it. So it keeps us fresh and it allows our life to fully enter itself. What I mean by organization is a feeling of connection or inclusion or completion beyond thought. In the light of the experience of the work of art, the world makes sense because it is no longer made of weighty and disparate parts. It is a world of nuance and shimmer, what we call beauty, though this word has become fairly useless because it has become confused with pretty. Beauty is not necessarily pretty. It is rather this accidental sensation, before we think about it and therefore make something of it, of connection, unmadeness, uselessness, perfection, freedom. Again, uh, a longish quote from Valerie. I recognize it, and here he's speaking of the poetic experience, but I think his remarks can be extended to any sort of art. I recognize it in myself by this. 
that all possible objects of the ordinary world, external or internal, beings, events, feelings and actions, while keeping their usual appearance, are suddenly placed in an indefinable but wonderfully fitting relationship with the modes of our general sensibility. That is to say, that these well-known things and beings, or rather the ideas that represent them, somehow change in value. They attract one another. They are connected in ways quite different from the ordinary. They become, if you will permit the expression, musicalized, resonant, harmonically related. The poetic experience, the art experience. What Valerie is describing here is a trance-like state that is more real to us than the real world we live in every day. It is a state that is oddly brought on by a formal arrangement of ordinary stuff in such a way as to discreate the ordinary stuff, take it apart, which is so startling when we actually notice it that we become literally entranced. The Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins once hypnotized a duck (laughs) with a straight white chalk line, holding the duck's head down and making the duck stare at the chalk line and mesmerize the duck, hypnotize the duck. When he lifted his hand from the duck, the duck was no longer, you know, forced to look at the chalk line, but the duck kept staring at the chalk line and didn't move. Hopkins wrote about this in his journal. And he wrote this. They explained that the bird, keeping the abiding offscape of the hand grasping her neck, fancies she is still held down and cannot lift her head as long as she looks at the chalk line, which she associates with the power that holds her down. This duck lifted her head at once when I put it down on the table without chalk. But this explanation seems inadequate to me. It is most likely the fascinating instress of the straight white stroke itself. Now, instress was a sort of technical word for Hopkins. He coined this word to refer to the potentially torqued nature of anything purely perceived without too much definition. And he considered instress to be, because he was a Jesuit, uh, he was a devout you know, Catholic religious, he considered instress to be clear evidence uh, of the nature and existence of God. The duck, in this case, Hopkins is, Hopkins is saying, was mesmerized not by becoming habituated to the feeling of the hand on the neck, but by virtue of her utter fascination with the chalk line as such, the hand in matter, see. For us, art is that chalk line. It points to the instress, to use Hopkins' term, of each thing in our perceptual world. I said a moment ago that the experience of art is an experience of connection beyond thought. The curiosity of it is that that experience, as a human experience, can't take place anywhere else but in thought or perception. 
This is exactly why it is so hard to pin down what an artwork actually is. And it is its unpin-downable nature, always the case, but lately more appreciated and, and examined than heretofore, that probably accounts for the history of art in the century that is now drawing to a close. This was written in 1999. This has been the job of this time, to point out directly and baldly that doubt and accident lies at the heart of what art has always been. And in doing this, one comes close to the boundary between art and life and immerses the boundary itself in doubt and accident. And when you think of all these things that happen in 20th century art, you know, all kinds of performance works and so on that uh, kind of uh, brought, broke down all the barriers, all the, f- all the formal structures that define works of art. until the words art and life become quite indistinct and imprecise. One could substitute for both the world reality or being itself, that the job of all art or living is to appreciate and authenticate what is. Our life simply as it appears. To serve as a reminder, an instance or exemplar of that. So, I'll I'll say that again, that the job of all art and living would be just to appreciate and authenticate what is, our life, simply as it appears, to serve as reminder. So, the artwork, then, is a reminder of that, an, an instance of it, an exemplar of it. Viktor Shlovsky, the Russian literary theorist, said, to make a stone stony. This is the purpose of art. Why don't we experience a stone as stony? Why do we persistently forget to come alive to the world as it is in front of our faces? Why do we have to go to all the trouble of making art or or, or spending all this time meditating, you know, just so that we can return to where we are and where we've been all along? I think it's because the way thought works in us, to be present in the midst of our being what we are, is a pure sensation that we can never really exactly appreciate. Uh, Not not appreciate. Never really exactly apprehend. We can appreciate it, but we can't ever really, you know, grasp it. Because it's fleeting. Thought is always coming a second afterward. telling us something, singing a song of the past. Thought includes the aroma of being alive, but it also includes so much that is made up, so much of doing and piling up, that it tempts us necessarily away from ourselves. To find within our thought and perception, for perception is already thought, a settled, free, and unmade place takes effort. And this is the effort of art. And also, I I would say, of spiritual practice, if it really means something. And another quotation from Valerie, there is no other definition of the present 
except sensation itself, which includes, perhaps, the impulse to action that could modify that sensation. On the other hand, whatever is properly thought, image, sentiment, is always in some way a production of absent things. Memory is the substance of all thought. Thought is, in short, the activity that causes what does not exist to come alive in us. Between voice and thought, between thought and voice, between presence and absence, oscillates the poetic pendulum. All of what I've been saying is a sort of Zen perspective on art, although I have a strong resistance to the idea of a Zen perspective on anything, (laughs) for reasons that are probably already obvious from what I've already said. So take the words Zen perspective, please, with a grain of salt and understand them as a shorthand way for, for looking at the world that is essentially unmade, a way of looking at the world that is essentially unmade and undefined. Of course, we can't get away with that. We will always have to be someplace and called something. So we will have to use terms somehow in the hope that we will remain willing to have them deconstructed right before our eyes and to find their deconstruction amenable. In the practice of Zen meditation, we are not trying to do anything other than to undo everything and simply be present as directly as possible with all phenomena that arise. This necessarily involves a moment-by-moment letting go of definition and perception and thought. I do not mean that we would attempt to become stupid, blank-minded, and unthinking. Rather, that we would let the world come and go as it naturally does, without trying to stop it at some arbitrary point of our own conscious or unconscious choosing. Which, of course, is what we try to do by making a world up, piling it up, as I have said, and becoming its victim. In Zen meditation, we happily enter a radically simple, even an absurd situation, just sitting and breathing so that we have the possibility of seeing how this troublesome world is made. Although we may not be able to do anything with this meditation practice, it does serve as a kind of training, helping us, by familiarity, to become directly used to the actual situation that prevails more or less within being. Meditation practice is a return over and over again, every moment, to that particularly odd situation which we can see, as time goes on, exists in the middle of any situation, no matter how simple or complex. Zen Master Dogen wrote a well-known text called Genjo Koan, which I translate as Koan of the Present Moment. In this text, he kindly extends the notion of koan, or fundamental meditation object, to our simply being within the present moment of our lives. A classical koan presents us with an insoluble problem. The only way to extend ourselves 
completely into that problem is to stop trying to solve it. In other words, to stop trying to make something of it and simply allow it fully to be what it is, which would necessarily mean that we would take it so personally that it would be our life. In Genjo Koan, Dogen points out that we do not need to take on some old saying of the masters in order to confront directly the issue at hand. In fact, each moment of our lives, if we would let go of our definitions and protections and elisions and lean fully into it, begs the question, what is to be done? What is this moment after all? The most famous passage of Genjo Koan goes like this. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be confirmed by all things. This confirmation is the dropping off of body and mind of oneself and others. It is enlightenment that dissolves all its traces and the tracelessness goes on endlessly. So now the essay ends with a little uh, explanation or uh, what do you call it, interpretation of those lines. To study Buddhism is to study the self. This means that one looks deeply and honestly at all points at the way in which one's life actually unfolds, looks, enters, and allows. This is always interesting, always provides a path forward no matter what it is that arises. That anything arises at all is miracle enough, whether we like it or no. So there is no judgment or resistance necessary, and even where there is judgment or resistance, there is a settling into that with appreciation and awe. To study the self is to forget the self, means that once you practice in the way your definitions, excuse me, means that once you practice in that way, your definitions and hedges against yourself fall away. And you can be perfectly happy going on with life, simply life, without any need to make anything out of it. To forget the self is to be confirmed by all things. Allowing things to be as they are without any protection is to appreciate the materials at hand. In everyday living, as in art making, which might not be so different after all from everyday living, there is a sense of form and presence in each and everything that comes forward in the present moment. Dropping body and mind of self and others is harder to see, for it expresses the freedom that one would feel in the renunciation of everything being willing to live as one is right now without any need to hold on to life now or in the future and to see that everything shares in this already. Finally, enlightenment dissolves its traces and the tracelessness goes on endlessly. This sense of life as anything distinctive dissolves. It doesn't look like anything. There is a sense that in the uselessness and unmade, the useless, there is a sense that in the useless and unmade 
space and time of actual living, there is a subtle endlessness and namelessness that is delightfully available to everyone at all times. I take this vision of Dogen to be more or less descriptive also of the process of making art, of anyway, the sense of art making that I am advancing here, which is, after all, following Ginsberg and Valerie, an inherently religious one. I do not want to conflate art and religion, of course. I recognize that they are not the same thing, and yet I am arguing that what we call the aesthetic impulse is at bottom identical to what we call the religious impulse. Certainly the cultural history of Zen, particularly in Japan, would attest to the close relationship between these two activities. And, and recently I've been reading Heidegger on art and poetry, and he, in a very different way, makes the same argument. Insofar as both art and religious practice always manifest in the world as we know it, as particular things, both have serious built-in problems. Religion solidifies into doctrinaire narrow-mindedness or institutional power-brokering, or usually both, and art solidifies into money. If it is successful, and despair, if not, a defeat in either case. I'm not the first to point out that art in our radically mercantile society is more or less doomed to become commodified, and that it is generally made for the wealthy and becomes for them in various ways a kind of sanitized and enriched currency. Even artists who do not make economically valuable artwork must create economically attractive explanations to attract funders to pay for the generally high cost of the art habit. <laughs> Even poets, who need uh, about $10 worth of materials to create their works, must vie for these same dollars. Despite this, I do not think the situation is hopeless. And that is why I have taken the time to think about this topic. I believe that if the artist can be clear about the nature of the project that he or she is finally concerned with and actively work at being clear about it and actively work at being clear about it, for clarity is never a given, it needs constant revision, just as if the religious practitioner, which is any of us, can be clear about the project he or she is engaged in, it is possible to proceed with liveliness and integrity despite the difficulties. Life well and seriously lived has never been without these difficulties. It is part of the fun and simply a given in the situation. Final quote from Valerie. The mind is terribly variable, deceptive and self-deceiving fertile in insoluble problems and illusory solutions. How could a remarkable work emerge from this chaos if this chaos that contains everything did not also contain some serious chance to know oneself and to choose within oneself whatever is worth taking from each moment? and using carefully. 
and finally, a short poem of Dogen. Being as it really is. What's that? In a water drop, shaken from a duck's beak, an image of the moon. Well, it's nice of you to be so attentive. Usually, uh, when people read things, everybody falls asleep immediately. So, thank you for staying awake. And uh, sometimes you write things many years ago, and you afterward don't believe them anymore. I think my essay could be improved in many ways, but uh, more or less, I do believe it still. I think that uh, those things that I thought about then, uh, I think, are still true for me now. Uh, and there is always a way. Uh, I think that that one has to be... Uh, I was thinking the other, the other day, uh, there's a kind of... Uh, certain kind of hysterical strength and ruthlessness that's necessary uh, to continue making art or living with integrity. You really have to. Yeah, uh, you, you have to know. I think the uh, how difficult the situation actually is, and be prepared for that. Uh, but if you are, I think, uh, you know, as I said in the essay, it's, it becomes part of the fun. And, and there's always a way. There's always a way. I remember it once. Uh, a young woman came when I was uh, Abbot of Green Gulch, and she was a calligrapher. And uh, she showed me examples of her work, and, and she said to me, uh, can, you, can you help me uh, find a way to market this calligraphy, and how can, who can I show it to, and what can I do to advance my career? And I said, I think you should just practice calligraphy more. You should find a good teacher and just practice more, and forget about all that. And, and she did. And uh, she became a much better calligrapher, actually. Wonderful calligrapher. And then, without trying too hard, she made a life for herself as a calligrapher. You know, she found ways to, for her work to be seen and, she, and make some money and make other, other ways of making money. There's always a way. The most important thing is to keep going. Survival is the hardest thing. Success is easy. Survival is difficult, but that's where the real work uh, comes in. So, thanks for listening, and maybe uh, now we go outside and walk for a while, no? It's time to do that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.